0: Hello everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Rituparna Patkiri. Today, I am going to be in conversation with Nikki Falcoff. Nikki Falcoff is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa. She is the author of The End of Whiteness, Satanism and Family Murder in Late Apartheid, South Africa, 2015 and Warrior State Risk, Anxiety and Moral Panic in South Africa 2022, as well as the co-editor of Anxious Joburg, The Inner Lives of a Global South City 2020 and Intimacy and Injury in the Wake of Me Too in India and South Africa 2022. In this podcast, we'll be discussing her book, Warrior State Risk, Anxiety and Moral Panic in South Africa, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. Nikki, I'm so glad to have you here today. Welcome to this interview.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let me begin the conversation by asking you about your main inspiration and motivation, you know, behind writing this book.
1: I mean, look, I have to be honest, we all know what academia is like, and this is an academic book. The initial motivation behind writing this book was very much publish or perish culture. <laughs> you know? I was at a point in my in my career when I published my first book, um, I was doing quite well as an early career researcher, and it was made abundantly clear to me that I was expected to have another big project. And so I started casting around for something to write about and I was very interested in moral panics and I thought I'd do a book on moral panic. And then I started working on moral panic and very quickly realized that the theory itself was quite dry and quite dull. And while I find the notion of moral panics extremely useful, um, the idea of writing an entire book just about moral panic in South Africa felt very, very dull and very boring. And then I found myself in this position where I'd managed to get some funding to do this book I didn't entirely know what it was about. And I started thinking in, I think, hopefully more interesting ways about some of the things I was interested in. And I kept coming back to this question of, you know, why, what underlies these, these social phenomena? What underpins social phenomena like moral panics and urban legends and conspiracy theories? And I just kept returning to thinking about the feeling, right? I, I, I feel as though often in this kind of, you know, sociological scholarship and i'm not by any means a sociologist i'm not trained that way but i feel like we very often dismiss emotion you know we don't spend enough time thinking really deeply about how things feel and at the same time you know coming to terms with moving back to johannesburg where i was born um, i hadn't lived here for close to 20 years i'd lived in cape town i'd lived in the uk a bit all over the place came back to johannesburg for to take up the the post that i have now and honestly you know it's such an anxious city it's such a, it's such a nervous place it's a city that i love very deeply but it's extremely frustrating and extremely anxiety provoking and I, I was i guess in the way that you do i was trying to write my way trying to write my way through those feelings so yeah i think the main eventually the main inspiration for me was working through the sense of living in a place that is fundamentally precarious and insecure and anxious, but also a place that is productive and generative and exciting in multiple ways.
0: Hmm. So uh, could you also talk a little bit about the setting of your book in terms of describing the field and your relationship with it?
1: Yeah, so the book is largely about media. That is kind of what I do. Um, So it is its field such as a field may be is is more or less the media landscape. I'm very interested in social media. I spend a st- stupid amount of my life um, attached to Twitter getting outraged by things as so many of us do.
0: I can identify but in a in
1: a less yeah. In a less kind of obvious sense, I guess the field, the setting of this book, the context of this book really is is Johannesburg, more broadly South Africa, more broadly Africa, more broadly the global south. And I don't want to make claims that are overly large for what I'm trying to do. But, you know, I, as I said before, my experience of moving from britain which is you know precarious and stressful in its own way back to south africa which is precarious and stressful in a completely different way really impacted on my daily life it impacted on how i view my own my own process of moving through the city and how my own my own selfhood as a woman my own selfhood as a white woman so my engagement with Johannesburg and with South Africa, with my my own personal history, with my identity, with my privilege, with the risk I face, the intersections of those different levels of privilege and unprivilege. I think that for me really defines the context. That, you know, this is not dispassionate work. This is not, this is not someone coming in and doing an ethnography of of, of something that they're not closely related to. I even the two of the chapters of the book. Are about communities I don't personally have that much engagement with that I did that I did approach through textual means rather than more personal means. Um I feel as though um living in South Africa makes you very embedded in the knowledge that everyone has their own manifestation of collective anxiety. Um so yeah, for me, the field that this book is based in is one that that I live in daily, basically. It is, it is a kind of a morass of, of emotion and affect that I have to swim through on a daily basis in order to get up, get out the house and go to work. So in a way, we could say, you know, the field that I'm writing about is, I guess, an effective landscape, even more than a physical landscape.
0: Hmm. So before going into the details of your book uh, and, you know, the contents of it, uh, could you talk a little bit about the research methods that you use in this work?
1: Yeah, so I I am kind of, well, not really trained. <laughs> I'm kind of semi-trained. I had a very odd and wonderful PhD experience in, um, in cultural studies, but not necessarily in cultural studies methodology. So my methodological approach has been very haphazard. I have generally figured out what I'm doing with things as I go along, rather than having a really clear forthright methodology, which for me has been incredibly productive you know i've been so lucky to have the freedom to do this and it's a freedom that i've tried to instill in my students but it's very difficult to do when you work within a an academic system that emphasizes methodology as this kind of fixed this fixed you know immutable object that everyone must just take on board um for this book i'd say you know mostly what i do is discourse analysis i guess that's really where i locate myself i find texts and I read them very, very carefully to try and see what they actually say. Um, one of the chapters in the book it does include some ethnography or some focus group work where I found a whole lot of people and I got them together and I asked them questions about a certain issue. But then the research that I, the, the analysis that I performed on that material, again, was discourse work. So looking very closely at what they said and how they said it. I mean, I think part of what's methodologically interesting for me is how do you collect material when you're writing on social media? There are so many options you can use. There's so much tech that you can use that will get you a huge body of literature that you can then write about. And that is really not the approach I take. And, you know, this is something that other colleagues have critiqued me for, that I should be using more kind of, you know, social science methodology to acquire particularly social media data, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in looking at, I generally do what people I think refer to as micro studies, you know, I'm interested in looking at a very, very, very small question or a very small issue and finding everything I can around that question and reading it incredibly carefully to try and see what it actually says as opposed to what it thinks it says. So... You know, I do worry sometimes that this is a methodology whose um, whose days are numbered and that as social media texts and as kind of news media proliferate to the extent that they are proliferating, it will become increasingly scholarly, it will become irrelevant in a scholarly sense to do studies that don't use hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of information as your basic data. But I'm hoping that I can avoid that. In a way, I think what I'm trying to do is... Treat media texts with, I suppose, a more literary approach where I'm interested in their narratives. I'm interested in narrative. I'm interested in storytelling. And in order to look at, to, order to think about things like narrative and storytelling, you can't just aggregate data. You actually have to read. So, uh,
0: my next question is that you know, you talk about fear, anxiety, and certain associated experiences. So, How do they impact both our macro as well as micro-political lives?
1: So in the context of South Africa and Johannesburg, which are the contexts that I know the best, I mean, we we can see the effects of fear and anxiety on the streets on a daily basis. If I walk out of my house, I have to unlock the front door and then lock the front door unlock the gate outside the front door, then lock the gate, walk out into the parking space, buzz the buzzer to let me out of the property where my car is located onto the street, then buzz the buzzer closed. Then I'll walk down the road. I'll walk past all my neighbor's houses that also have high walls and bars and fences. I'll walk past innumerable cameras. There are security cameras everywhere. I'll probably walk past a couple of Security guards on the street. When I walk to the shop, I walk to the local pharmacy. There will be security with or without guns in my neighborhood. The guns suddenly feel quite necessary because there was recently a shootout during a robbery at the pharmacy on the main road. All of these architectural infrastructural elements, these are all a consequence of fear. And that's not to say that, you know, the fear and anxiety that people have in a city like Johannesburg are irrelevant. Of course, they're not. We do have an extremely high crime rate. But I would posit that the relationship between crime and infrastructure is not as straightforward as it might seem. It's not simply a case of crime rates rise and suddenly the infrastructure is developed. I mean, if you look at how the security, the security establishment was was kind of born in South Africa, the security establishment that we have that is one of the largest and most sophisticated in the world. This kind of happened at the same time as crime rates were said to be increasing. So what you have is, you know, in the 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s, when it becomes abundantly clear that apartheid is coming to an end and that the system of white domination will no longer be sustainable. You get white people who are the people with the most, at that stage, the most money and power in South Africa, becoming more and more afraid. Some, just in general terms, some specifically of the the race war that has been predicated for you know decades that this is the thing we need to be afraid of and those people start to arm themselves and securitize their homes and flee the inner city and the face of the city changes radically and it becomes this violently securitized place and now you know decades later We're in a situation where Johannesburg looks the way that it looks, where, you know, other than certain areas at night, it's a ghost town. People don't walk places unless they absolutely have to. You know, we don't have reliable public transport. There are all these different issues related to both crime and the fear of crime. And, you know, more kind of existentially, I suppose, the the unfocused types of anxieties that people have about being living in such a difficult and complex city in such a difficult and complex country. And then of course, you know, more prosaically, the things that we fear also impact dramatically on the things that we vote for. (laughs) We vote, we vote according to what we fear, not what we hope for. In most cases, Politicians are very good at stirring up fear. You know, we in, in South Africa at the moment, pretty much every major party is at times running on a, a platform related to anti-African xenophobia. Everyone's doing it. Even the people who initially claimed that they weren't going to be doing it. Everyone's freaking out about illegal immigration and blaming illegal immigrants for everything. We have these horrific outbreaks of violence. And that impacts on, you know, which parties come to the forefront. It impacts on the rise of particular types of populist movements. So, you know, fear the fear that we feel dictates where we spend money, what we spend money on. And, of course, these things have huge longer-term consequences because of how economies shape cities and countries. They dictate, as I said, who we vote for. They dictate who we socialize with and where, which has social consequences. You know, how do our societies feel? Are they atomized? Are they diverse? Are they integrated? Are they angry? Are they paranoid? On a daily level and for much, much, much larger political structures, fear and anxiety really do impact on the way that our societies and our cities look.
0: Right. Since you talk about fear, let me also ask you that how does fear become a collective experience, particularly, you know, in South Africa?
1: So I am very interested in fear as a collective experience. I'm not really interested in, in kind of individual manifestations of fear because, you know, that is work that, that needs to be done by psychologists. Why does one person feel the way that they do? Um, I think more useful for for the kind of broader social analysis that I'm trying to do is thinking about, yeah, when do fears become collective? When does something become something that a lot of us are worried about? Because when that happens, that's when it does have the potential to shape cities and daily life, as I suggested before. So one way of looking at this, one way of thinking about it is, of course, through media. You know, I can't go and interview 10,000 South Africans to find out what they fear on a daily basis. What I can do is look at hashtags on Twitter and of course, I fully acknowledge that that is a very skewed data set because in a country like this with a massive digital divide, the vast majority of South Africans are not using Twitter so when I write about social media I know that I'm writing about a small segment of the middle classes nonetheless, I think that that kind of work is very interesting for helping us figure out what those people are talking about and worrying about. Because those people are also often the people who work in the media, who make the popular culture. And in that way, they may not intentionally be setting agendas, but their own anxieties may creep through into larger broadcasts. So Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say exactly when a fear becomes collective. I think rather than going at it from that direction, what's more interesting is looking at it from the other direction and going, I can see this upswing of hysteria about a particular issue that didn't seem to be an issue five years ago or a new term has arisen to describe something that has been going on for a really long time and suddenly this term has become an object of fear. Looking at that and going... Why are we suddenly scared of this thing? What is this thing standing in for? What does this thing suggest? What is this thing telling us about who we are and how we feel right now? For me, those kinds of collective fears are the point at which emotion becomes interesting as a political force.
0: I wanted to ask, uh, what is the relationship with the identities of class, race and gender with these, you know, uh, ideas of fear, risk, anxiety that you have, particularly in South Africa.
1: One, one critique that I got when I was writing this book um, from a very, very perceptive peer reviewer was that, they were worried that I was kind of flattening out anxiety, right? That I was was going anxiety in South Africa is a pervasive condition that everyone suffers from. And they were going, look, you need to be a bit more thoughtful about this. You need to be very careful about what you're saying here, which was absolutely true because while I would argue that, you know, pretty much everyone in this country is suffering under these late capitalist conditions of fear and anxiety, of course, the way that these things manifest is radically different depending on who you are. There is a way, there is a kind of fear that women have in this country that is generally not understood or not sympathized with by many men. Men men in South Africa who feel, even though, let's not kid, you know, men are subject to more violence than women, right? The majority of, of murder victims in this country are black men. But women experience a kind of pervasive, almost generic fear of attack, or harassment on the streets of South African cities that can be very difficult for men to empathize with because they, you know, they don't they don't necessarily see it, necessarily see it as, as threatening. We have very high rates of femicide in this country. Um I hear horrific stories from my female students of taking public transport to get to school, the kind of things that they have to put up with, the generalized daily harassment, which of course you know will be familiar to anyone who's grown up in a large city in India. There are there are huge similarities between the ways in which women are treated in in both places, um, and then of course you know the issue of the issues of class and race, which are intertwined in very important ways, but are not quite the same thing, are hugely relevant in South Africa. You know, white people and privileged people, middle class people, we tend to think that we are the extraordinary victims, that we suffer the most victimhood, that because we are so visible, we undergo the most horrific conditions and it's so unfair for us but statistics such as we have them suggest that the majority of crime and violence in this country is experienced by people who are poorer and black those of us who are white and middle class and who live as i say in the suburbs behind our high walls with our buttons for our security companies you know yes we are scared but what happens to us is much less frequent than what happens to everybody else in this country, people who live in much more precarious ways. So there's something about the way in which people experience their own identities, experience their own you know, things like gender, race and class, but also nationality, also tribal identities that make you feel like you are more or less likely to be victimized in certain ways by certain types of people. And that sense of victimization, I think, also adds significantly to the atomization of South African society, where we we can often we often lack empathy for each other. We often feel like, you know, what is happening to us, what might happen to us is the worst thing. And we fail to see that everyone is at risk. You know, this is a particular problem with white people who bang on about, you know, reverse racism and how terrible it is that we are now the victims and that people are doing apartheid on us, like the lack of empathy that this displays considering how much worse daily life is and daily life remains for the poor black majority who are the aftermath of apartheid, who have just been left in informal settlements and squatter camps to just sink, you know, but Unfortunately, the identity the, these identities, these privileged locations of race and class, often make us blind to anyone else. They make us they, they they convince us into a kind of a fake naturalization of other people's suffering, whereby it's seen to be relatively normal for black people to suffer and completely exceptional and unacceptable for white people to suffer. This is one of the unconscious ideologies underpinning so much aggressive abrasive racial discourse in this country
0: okay so since you mentioned white people as well so there is also a narrative and myth of white genocide and how does that then fit into these ideas of fear and anxiety
1: i have a chapter in the book on this myth of white genocide uh it's been bothering me for a really long time and i felt quite compelled to write about it. I've I've written about white people quite a lot in my work, to the point that I often um, written off as one of those, you know, liberal white ladies who talks to other liberal white ladies, because there are a lot of white women in this country who do whiteness studies, such as it may be. Um, the, The white genocide myth is not normally the kind of white people that I write about. I'm usually interested in sort of you know, faux-liberal suburbanites, people who live in places like the place that I live in, which, you know, appears in another chapter of the book. But the white genocide myth I find so powerful and so disturbing because it has spread so far. So I'm assuming that all your listeners will be familiar with it, but if you're not, in South Africa, what white genocide means is something very specific. Obviously, the term has spread broadly across the world, uh, partly because of, far-right South Africans who have a huge presence on social media and other more mainstream, well, not mainstream, but other more traditional media like Fox News. In South Africa, the term white genocide is often used to refer to so-called farm murders. These are very, very violent, very brutal murders of white people on farms. When white people talk about farm murders, what they mean is the murders of white farmers. And yes, these murders do happen. And yes, they are horrific. And yes, they are brutal. But they are no more brutal than the murders of black lesbians in townships. They are no more brutal than the murders of of black laborers by white farmers on farms. Nonetheless, the myth of white genocide constructs these particular types of killings as something pre-planned, organized a conspiracy. Sometimes it's assumed that it's run by the state. Sometimes it's assumed that it's vigilantes from neighboring African countries who cross the border specifically to do this. In some instances, these types of crimes are perpetrated by disgruntled workers, people who have been abused and exploited for many, many years and react with violence, which obviously does not excuse them, but does put them into some sort of broader context. Nonetheless, the myth of white genocide that's perpetrated and perpetuated by particularly Afrikaans' far-right figures and groups suggests that when white people are killed... There's something exceptional and specifically outrageous about it. Again, this is about naturalization. What this myth does is it says, look, black people die all the time in hideously violent ways. Oh, well, that's what happens to them. That's how their lives are. When we die, the government must set up special commissions of inquiry. When we die, it's unnatural and abnormal. Now, from where I'm sitting, any violent murder is unnatural and abnormal. Any violent murder should be investigated. No violent murders should be happening at all, right? I'm not trying to undermine or denigrate the horrific things that have happened to some white people on farms. But the white genocide myth basically invisibilizes black victims. It says the only people whose deaths matter are us. And one of the effects that I believe it has in South Africa is The spread of this myth, the spread of the discourses, the narratives around this myth combine to make white people feel even more anxious and even more victimized. And this has the effect of further disengaging white affect from the state as a whole. Right. When you feel like you are victimized, when you feel like you personally are an extraordinary victim, it's not even that you've been ignored by the state. It's that the state actively wants you to die you know, it's very difficult to engage with that state in any way that helps to build a more coherent and cohesive society. And this is all very useful for the kind of far-right political groupings that that do perpetuate these stories. You know, one of the things that I show in the book is that At the time of of the the material that I've used, the time of the data set that I've used, there was so much conversation, there was so much kind of hysterical discussion around white genocide. And in so many cases, what happens is these people begin by talking about murder and death and genocide and we've been wiped out and the whites are being killed left, right and center. And then they quite quickly segue into talking about threats to white property rights or the fact that they feel white people are being unfairly penalized in the job market. Or the fact that white people, you know, can't, don't stand in parliament as much as they should. And these things are very different, you know. <laughs> Having a street renamed from an apartheid hero to a black liberation struggle hero in the town where you live is not the same as genocide. It's really not. But there are these slippages that happen in that story all the time. Where the white genocide proponents basically use farm murders as a way to freak out about what they think of as a cultural Erasia. And sure, you know, you can have an argument that cultural erasure is a problem. But to equate that with a planned conspiratorial genocide by the state, and to think about what the larger consequences are of that when this myth has spread around the world and has been perpetuated by far right groups all over the place, to the point where, you know, you had Donald Trump tweeting about it, you had Peter Dutton, who was an Australian minister at the time, God knows what he's doing now, hopefully he's not in power anymore, but he was trying to set up fast track visas for white farmers who are undergoing a genocide. I mean, it's hugely destructive. Um, So, yeah, I think what the white genocide myth does is it creates massive anxiety outside South Africa about South Africa. It constructs massive anxiety inside South Africa about the risks and perils and specialness and exceptionalism of being white. And what that does is it further separates white people out from any sense that they might belong to a broader polis.
0: Right. And, you know, it also brings me to ask you about the relationship that fear and anxiety has with modernity in, you know, a society like South Africa.
1: One of the arguments that I making in this book is that the explosion of anxiety in South Africa actually makes us fundamentally modern. <laughs> um, so a lot of, a lot of scholarship in this area, a lot of work on things like fear of crime, cultures of fear, these things focus on the global North, right? They're very interested in how we're interested in how people feel in the North. What does it feel like to be scared? And a lot of these scholars Talk about how people objectively are more scared than they've ever been before, even though life in many ways is safer than it's ever been before. And all, you know, these are all fantastic and convincing arguments. But when they do acknowledge the global south, they tend to acknowledge the global south as simply the source of fears for the global north, like where all the scary stuff comes from, it's where the terrorists come from, it's where Ebola comes from, it's where COVID comes from, it's where, you know, new climate threats come from, all these terrible things that emerge here and go there and scare people. (laughs) And what I've been trying to argue in this and and my previous book, Anxious Joe book, is that actually it's really important for us to think about what it feels to be afraid in the global South, in South Africa, in Johannesburg. If we're going to acknowledge that fear is a fundamental component of modernity, that people now are more afraid than they've ever been, that the explosion of mass media followed by the explosion of digital media, the conditions of late capitalism, when when power is even more opaque than it used to be, when it's become we as individuals are feel more and more powerless than we ever have done before, you know, trapped in structures we don't understand. If this is fundamentally a modern condition, then the fact that these things manifest in such potent, powerful and interesting ways in South Africa and in Johannesburg is one part of the motivation we can use to argue for the the modernity of South Africa and Johannesburg, that instead of this, this country and other developing world countries being dismissed as these kind of you know weird throwbacks. We are actually, this is a forefront of modernity. People here are so anxious, right? People here are so fearful. It's not, we're not living some atavistic past tense version of what things are going to be like. This is what cities will look like. Johannesburg is actually more like things will be not less like things are going to be. More cities in the world are going to become securitized. There's going to be more and more inequality. The differences are going to become starker and starker. We will have more malls, more gated communities, more environmental crises, less green space. You know, all of these things that here are so potent and look you in the face. These are a set of modern urban problems that multiple cities across the globe are going to be dealing with in the next few decades. And the way that we feel living in this place is a is a kind of a marker for the way that other people are going to feel living in the places where they live and this is starting to happen all around the world already you know you're already seeing in cities like london that used to be considered much safer huge rise in the use of private security apparatus you know surveillance cameras everywhere people are getting alarms for their homes these sorts of things so I think that we can say that the explosion of, of fear and anxiety and related emotions, the explosion of narratives around moral panic and conspiracy theory in places like South Africa, actually, rather than suggesting that they're kind of you know, stuck in the past tense, really does give us a good case for going, this is where modernity is happening. Modernity is actually happening in the global South at the moment.
0: Right, right. Last question. How do you see the future scope of research in this area?
1: I mean, it's such an interesting question, because what is this area? <laughs> you know, I, I, I come up against this all the time. What do I actually do? You know, um, I mean, I kind of work in media studies. I do. I teach in a media studies department. I kind of work in cultural studies. That's how I think of myself. But there isn't really a field of Anxiety studies. And I can't claim to be doing affect theory because that is a whole complex and extremely important area of scholarship on its own that, you know, I haven't even really approached. So, you know, what am I I'm not really doing urban studies, although, you know, a lot of what I write is about cities. I mean, I think if there is a future for research in this area, I think what I would do is argue Um, I would would like to follow Sarah Ahmed, which, you know, Sarah Ahmed, rather, which so many people do, and whose work is so useful in so many different ways. You know, she, in, in the cultural politics of emotion, she writes about the need to take emotion seriously as a political force. She gives a really good explanation for why dismissing emotion, feminizing emotion, means that we don't really understand how contemporary power in contemporary societies works. So if there is a way forward for this kind of research, I'd like to argue for that. And I'd like to argue for people doing it in more diverse places, right? What does it mean to feel afraid or anxious in Accra? And how does that impact on the way in which Accra People move around the city, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm thinking of, of cities that I've been to briefly and had very different experiences in places like Mexico City or Cartagena in Colombia. These cities that have certain kinds of reputations, they have certain kinds of global meanings, but then how do people experience these negative emotions or even positive emotions that I'm interested in in those places? And yes, how do those emotions shape mobility, shape infrastructure, shape voting patterns, shape media forms, shape popular culture, shape personal experience in these different places. So yeah, again, I just, I would like to make the case for researchers in the global South to be empowered to take emotions seriously, to take daily life seriously, and not In an anthropological sense, right? Not in the sense where there's some kind of critical distance where you step back and go, oh, this is so interesting, let's see how these people feel. But in the sense of immersing yourself in a kind of a contemporary modernity and acknowledging that that contemporary modernity is so deeply impacted by how people feel that we cannot really understand city life at the moment without thinking about what it feels to live like, what it feels like rather to live in a certain place at a certain time.
0: Right. Thank you so much Nikki for talking to me about your very interesting book and I hope our listeners pick up the book and read it. Thank you once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me.